We're going to look at verses 13 through 25 tonight. Actually, tonight's study would have made a great Lego video too, as you'll see in a minute. We're sworn to secrecy as to who made that video. I know. Two of us know, and that's it. If you've ever read the Aeneid by first century Roman poet Virgil, by the way, any, any smart people here, how is that pronounced? Does anybody know how it's, is it the Aeneid? A-E-N-E-I-D, sometimes A-N-E-I-D. Could be Aeneid, for all I know. But anyway, Let's agree we're going to call it the Aeneid, okay? So if you've ever read that by the first century Roman poet Virgil, you've come across this gruesome passage. The living and the dead at his command were coupled face to face and hand to hand, till choked with stench and loathed embraces tied, the lingering wretches pined away and died. All right. Maybe that's why we don't read Virgil that much anymore, but it's a description actually of a form of torture in which they fastened a dead body to the victim, tying shoulder to shoulder, face to face, thigh to thigh, arm to arm. According to another source, and I quote, Cicero cites from Aristotle, the torture was inflicted by Etruscan pirates. The gruesome details of this pirate punishment are given in an essay by Jacques Brunschwig, who writes this, A living man or woman was tied to a rotting corpse, face to face, mouth to mouth, limb to limb, with an obsessive exactitude in which each part of the body corresponded with its matching putrefying counterpart. Shackled to their rotting double, the man or woman was left to decay. To avoid starvation of the victim and to ensure the rotting bonds between the living and the dead were fully established, the Etruscan pirates continued to feed the victim appropriately. Only once the superficial difference between the corpse and the living body started to rot away through the agency of worms, which bridged the two bodies, establishing a differential continuity between them, did the Etruscans stop feeding the living one. Once both the living and the dead had turned black through putrefaction, the Etruscans deemed it appropriate to unshackle the bodies by now combined together. Aren't you, uh, you're pretty glad you came tonight, I'm sure. So makes Schmore sound really good. There are historical reports of this form of torture lasting into the 16th century. Now, the Aeneid by Virgil was written in the late 1st century before Christ. The Etruscans had been around for a long time before the 1st century. The Apostle Paul, well-read, well-traveled, he would have been familiar with this practice of the body of death as a literal torture carried out upon persons. That being the case we can see that he used it as an illustration in verse 24 when he says, O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Paul pictured himself and with himself every other believer in Jesus Christ as needing to be delivered from the body of death. He was depicting the Christian life as if he were tied securely to a rotting corpse. What is the body of death, this rotting corpse that we find attached to ourselves? It's what we call the flesh. Now, the flesh is not the physical body itself. No, it's something different. It's a principle at work within me that demands I use my physical body in sinful ways to fulfill its lusts. Even after I am saved and have received a new spiritual nature, I find the flesh at work in my body. 
as long as I remain in my current physical body, I will have the flesh to contend against. Spiritually speaking, you are carrying around the body of death. It's a very good, if graphic, illustration of your life as a believer on this side of heaven. Now, as chapter 7 closes, Paul devoted a great deal of time to talking about the body of death and its effect upon you as a believer. But first, he needed to button up a discussion we've been having about God's law. He has one more point to make about the law, and it starts in verse 13. He says, Has then what is good become death to me? Certainly not. But sin, that it might appear sin, was producing death in me through what is good, so that sin through the commandment might become exceedingly sinful. Now, obviously, we're in the middle of a longer discussion. Paul had been talking about God's law and the relationship of God's law to the Christian. He had answered an objection that if the purpose of the law was to expose my sin, was the law itself sinful? His answer to that question we saw last time was no. Now he's answering another objection about God's law. If God's law reveals my sin, has it become death to me? In other words, is my condition hopeless, leading only to eternal death? Uh, and now, I have to admit to you, I've, I've admitted this, I, I have trouble with these objections and these questions. I don't really understand them, be, but I'm not a first century Jew who had been trying to live my entire life uh, by the law of God. And Paul didn't come along in my life and then pull that rug out from under me and say, yeah, you can't live by the law. In fact, you were never meant to live by the law. The law was only there to expose your sin. And if I try and put myself in that position, as hard as it is, I can, I can at least understand that they would be troubled by these things and they might say crazy things like, well, then you're saying that the law is sinful if it exposes sin. Paul says, no, I didn't say that. Well, you're saying that the law kills me then if it exposes my sin because there's no hope. And he goes, no, I didn't say that either. There's no hope in the law to save you, but there is hope. And so Paul is dealing with these very real, very practical issues uh, in the lives of the Jews that he is talking to there in Rome. So his answer here is, of course not. The law hasn't become death. It, it doesn't lead you to eternal death. It shows you the exceeding sinfulness of indwelling sin so that I will understand I cannot be saved by works I might perform, but that I might and can be saved through God's intervention on my behalf. The law shows me how exceedingly sinful I am so that I can see once and for all that I can't keep the law. There's no way I can save myself by that law, by any law, by any effort of my own. And so it leaves me in a state of needing God's help and that's where we want to be. And so in verse 14, <clears throat> Paul concludes and he says, We know that the law is spiritual, but I am carnal sold under sin. Now this verse serves as a conclusion to the previous section and as a segue into what we're talking about tonight, the body of death. He says, for we know that the law is spiritual. That's what he's been talking about. God's law exposes my sin, it shows me my exceeding sinfulness, and it's important because it prepares my heart to receive the gospel of Jesus Christ. And uh, I told you a few weeks ago about in my own life, my own testimony, and many of you would have this same testimony if especially if you were saved later in life, 
there, there came a moment uh, in your life, maybe a, a period of time even, <clears throat> when the conviction of sin weighed heavy upon you and all of a sudden you realized maybe for the first time, not that you weren't perfect or that you did some bad things, or, you know, but that you were a, a sinner and sin was exceedingly sinful and there was absolutely nothing you could do about it. And, and you were just lost in it. And apart from God intervening, you would be eternally lost. And so that's what Paul is saying. The law is spiritual, preparing my heart to receive the gospel of Jesus Christ. He says, but I, meaning himself, of course, and every believer, I am carnal, sold under sin. Now, carnal literally means fleshly or made of flesh. It's referring to what we're calling the flesh. Sold under sin is in a present verb tense, That means it is something that was ongoing in Paul's life. There's a big argument among commentators. I mean, admittedly, these are not the easiest verses in the Scripture. From a bird's eye view, I think they are, but when you get into parsing them, it's like, oh, wow. And and so a lot of commentators want to say this was Paul before he got saved when he was trying to live by the law. He certainly wouldn't say this about himself after he was saved, but he, he is because... Those scholars who get real into this and deep into it say, this is a perfect or a present verb tense. This is an ongoing struggle in Paul's life. In fact, throughout these remaining verses, Paul uses present tense in his verbs. This is his ongoing struggle, and it is ours too. And, And for one, I'm glad it's in the present tense because I struggle with this whether I think Paul did or not. And if I'm... And when a guy comes and says, yeah, Paul never had these problems. This was before he was a Christian. I'm sitting there thinking, well, I'm having these problems as a Christian. What's wrong with me? And it's not very comforting. If I am saved, how is it that I am sold under sin? I thought I was delivered from sin by Jesus Christ. Well, with regards to the flesh, it still seeks to bring you into slavery to sin as it demands that you fulfill its lusting appetites. We all know the power of the flesh to bring us back into slavery to sin. If you're honest, you've been battling the flesh today. You've had warfare going on in your life today. As one of your physical appetites you know, has sought to dominate your life. Your flesh raising up its, its, itself and, and pushing you in that direction as it were. Many of us experience this firsthand. Christians can and do sin, sometimes severely. Verse 15, For what I am doing I don't understand. For what I will to do, that I do not practice. What I hate, that's what I do. There should be no controversy over this statement. Every honest believer can say this. It summarizes very poignantly the struggle we find within our hearts between the flesh and and the Spirit. Now, I know we don't go by experience, or at least we don't go by experience alone. We need the Word of God. But isn't this exactly how you feel sometimes as a Christian? As if no matter how hard you try, your flesh clings to you like a rotting corpse, making it difficult for you to do the things you want to do in your heart of hearts and encouraging you to do the things that you don't want to do. I feel like that. And you think, man, Lord, this, what is it? It's this flesh. We sometimes call it the sin nature or indwelling sin. We have a lot of different names for it. I think it's best 
to see that the sin nature has been dealt with, crucified, put to death at the cross, but what's left over is this principle in our members, the flesh. Uh, maybe it's a semantic thing, maybe it's not, but you know, you just you get to the point where you're just, I'm just the struggle. What is it? It's like a rotting corpse that you're face to face with all the time. Verse 16, If then I do what I will not to do, I agree with the law that it is good. Now, I spent a lot of time looking at this verse because it's very important you hear what Paul was saying. It, it's, it's a little bit hard in the way it's translated, but I think we can bring it out. He's describing, of course, a struggle against sin. And while he might do what he didn't want to do, he simultaneously says, I agree with, I consent with the, God's law about what I want to do and what I don't want to. In other words, I see in God's law right and wrong. I know what I want to do, but I'm struggling against this that I don't want to do. And so his struggle proves something. One of the commentaries I read, I think, puts it better than I can. After I tried to explain it, I came across this explanation. I think it's, it's pretty good. So uh, here it is. It says, The very struggle with evil shows that it is not loved or approved but that the law which condemns it is what is really loved, Christians may here find a test of their piety. The fact of struggling against evil, the desire to be free from it and to overcome it, the anxiety and grief which it causes, it's an evidence that we do not love it and that therefore we are the friends of God. Perhaps nothing can be a more decisive test of piety than a long, continued, and painful struggle against evil passions and desires in every form, a panting of the soul to be delivered from the power and the dominion of sin. I find that refreshing. I never had this struggle before I got saved. Uh, now, all of us would have a, a little bit of a different testimony. And I've told you before, I don't think you believe me, but before I got saved, I would consider myself amoral. I had no real morality. The only morality I was raised with was don't get caught. <clears throat> and so whatever you could do that you wanted to do uh, that you could get away with without getting caught uh, and you know getting into real trouble with the authorities... That was good. It didn't matter if you hurt other people uh, as long as you didn't get caught doing it. Uh, and and uh, I'm not proud of that. I mean, uh, but, you know, that's, that's how I was raised. Uh, you know, that was kind of the culture of, of the day and all. Uh, and, and so I never had this kind of struggle. I never wept over evil things that I had. Oh, why, why did I do that? Oh, why? I never had that kind of thing going on. I'd get scared every now and then thinking I was going to get caught doing something or having done something and, you know, caught in a lie or kind of what. But, you know, I never had an internal struggle about, you know, what I was doing. I, I don't even know if I had a conscience by the time I was in my late teens. Uh, and so then I became a Christian, and it's actually very refreshing to, to see that there's a struggle in your heart against sin, to know that there is such a thing as sin. Remember when. They gave President Bush such a hard time because he said there was evil in the world. What are you talking about? I know what he's talking about. There's evil in the world. There's an actual evil and an evil presence and evil beings and evil men and, and, and there's sin. And, and when you're struggling against that, when you're face to face with the rotting flesh of your corpse, the, the, you know, yeah, it's, it's a wretched thing, Paul's going to say, but there's a, 
if there's a positive spin that you can put to it, it's that you can recognize that Christ is at work in your heart. That there is a, a, a movement in your heart to say that there is a good, there is a glory, there is something worth struggling for. Verse 17, But now it's no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. This is probably something you think your kids have said to you. I didn't do that. Sin did that. You're always talking about sin? Hey. But that's not what Paul is saying. He's not shifting the blame to sin. He's not saying, I'm not responsible for it. He's still talking about the conflict within. As a believer, with a new nature, he desired to serve the Lord, heart, mind, and soul, but he found, as we find, that sin still dwells in me. The flesh is still there. And that is what rears itself up and that we struggle with. I know he's talking about the flesh because he says so now in verse 18. He says, For I know that in me, that is, in my flesh, nothing good dwells. The flesh is there. It's dwelling within you. It's no good. It is altogether evil and it's bent on fulfilling its own lusts. Now the remainder of verse 18 and all the way through verse 23, it can be tough to navigate. It's a spiritual version of who's on first. It's like, you know, Paul says, I want to do this, I don't do that, I did do that, I didn't do this, you know, and then he builds up to this statement in verse 24. But that's why I think Paul gives the illustration, or I guess, you know, to be honest, I can't, I can't 100% say that Paul is using the illustration of the Etruscan pirate torture, but it sure sounds like it. I mean, he mentions the body of death and he's talking about carrying around within us this, this flesh, this thing that we could see as a rotting corpse. And, you know, Paul was familiar with all the poets and writers of his time. He's pretty familiar with pirates. Uh, you know, he'd been shipwrecked a few times and he'd been in danger of robbers and all. And so, uh, you know, he would have known this. Uh, but he talks about the body of death. And to me, it simplifies what he was saying by illustrating it. If a picture is worth a thousand words, this is a very, very powerful picture of what it is like, the conflict that a Christian has within his members. Uh, I have the new spiritual nature of God. I'm born again and God gives me His nature to indwell me. My spirit comes alive. I'm a new creature in Christ. And I find that I still have the flesh and I can't really get rid of it. I'll never be free from it as long as I'm in this current physical body. So it may as well be tied to me face to face, shoulder to shoulder, waist to waist, leg to leg. I might as well be looking at it every day. Every day and every moment and every day, I'm face to face with the flesh in my walk with the Lord and it's not going away until either I die or the rapture takes place. So let's read the verses all at once, verse, uh, the remainder of verse 18 through verse 23 at least, with this illustration in mind. Paul says, For to will is present with me, but how to perform what is good, I don't find it. For the good that I will to do, I do not do. But the evil I will not to do, that I practice. Now if I do what I will not to do, it's no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. If I find then a law that evil is present with me, the one who wills to do good, 
For I delight in the law of God according to the inward man, but I see another law in my members, warring against the law of my mind and bringing me into captivity to the law of sin, which is in my members. Now, one way of kind of getting a a view of what he's talking about might be to look at the laws that he mentions. He mentions several times this word law. And we see in these verses there is God's law, meaning his perfect standard of righteousness, summarized in the Ten Commandments. But really it's just talking about everything that God has revealed about himself in the Scripture, uh, you know, and, and the, the fact that there is a perfect standard of righteousness, there is right behavior, and that as a Christian I know what that is now. The, it, it's, it's what God wants me to do and what would be pleasing to God. Then he says, there is a law that evil is present within me, verse 21, called sin, in verse 23, dwelling in my members, verse 23, that is, in my physical body. And so, evil is present with me, it's sin dwelling in my physical body. Now, the word for law here could be translated principle. And so, there's a principle that within me is the flesh. It seeks to fulfill its lusts in sinful ways. And so, you know, if if somebody were to ask you, so I've been born again, but I'm still struggling against sin. What's that all about? You say, well, there's a, a principle at work in your physical body, and it will be until you go to heaven that that you have this thing, the flesh, that's left over from uh, the old nature. And it's the desire and the inclination and and the push to use your physical body in sinful ways. And then there's the law of my mind, Paul says. Again, that's a principle which I take to mean my mind that is spiritually renewed when I received Jesus Christ and was given a new nature and became a new creature. So simply what he's saying is, I'm born again, I have my mind renewed, I now desire to walk in such a way that I would be pleasing to God and I now desire to live according to His righteous standards as revealed in His law. When you got up this morning, uh, even if you're not a morning person, probably with your first breath you thought and in the clarity of your mind you thought, Lord, I want to walk with you today. I want to please you today. I want to serve you today. I want today to be a day of wonder and victory and, and power Uh, You know, those kinds of things. Uh, And then you got out of bed. Your feet hit the floor uh, and you were face to face with the flesh. You realize that there's this evil presence and principle right inside of you seeking to use your members to fulfill the lusts that you find there. Okay, so that's what's going on. Verse 24, so Paul says, O wretched man that I am! Who will deliver me from this body of death? Paul says, I'm a Christian, born again, and I'm tied up to a body of death. Who's going to deliver me from that? I'm wretched. But I like what he says. He doesn't say what. He says, who will deliver me? And he's letting us know that I can, you can, I will, you will be delivered from the body of death. Now, first of all, he says in verse 25, I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So that's the answer to his question. He says, who can deliver me? Well, I'm thanking God because Jesus can. So then with the mind, I myself serve the law of God, but with flesh, 
the law of sin. So, what's he saying? Well, the first half of the verse looks to the fact that I will be delivered. One day, I'm going to be with my resurrected and exalted Lord for all eternity in my own brand new body. When that day comes, I'm going to be free forever from the flesh. And so, we may die. The Bible says to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. My take on that is that our physical body goes in the ground, it's cremated, it's blown to smithereens, whatever happens to it. Our spirit goes to be with the Lord. Spirit has substance. You know, we always think of, you know, a smoky thing. But, you know, it's, it's, you know, your spirit has substance. You're in heaven with the Lord. You're, you know, you're real. You're alive. You're conscious. And you're waiting for the rapture. Now you really want the rapture to happen. I mean, we want the rapture to happen, but then you want it to happen even more because you're like, hey, I want my body. I want my new body. And so then the rapture, you're the trumpet. The Lord comes in the rapture. The Bible says the dead in Christ shall rise first. So the ashes on the mantle, the body in the ground, the, you know, wherever your body ended up and all of its little molecules, God brings it back together. It's not the same body. 1 Corinthians 15, it's like a seed that goes in the ground. There's a connection to your old body, but it's new, it's brand new, it's beautiful. It's a perfect body fit for heaven. It's like the body Jesus Christ has now that He's risen from the dead. And then... You know, we can't really parse the time. You can't, like, clock it, really, on your, you know, Apple stopwatch or anything. But immediately after that, the, the rapture takes place. Living believers who are still in their physical bodies, like you and I, if it happened right now, our bodies are just changed and they're transformed into our heavenly body, our glorified body, and we're all caught up to be with the Lord. And in that body, I have total deliverance from the flesh this principle is gone there's no vestiges of the old sin nature no habituations no principle no lustings nothing like that I can't even imagine that in my wildest dream I don't think I know what it would be like to be free from the flesh but Paul says Jesus Christ in his resurrection that's the kind of deliverance that's coming to the human race that was ruined by Adam and Eve and their fall in the garden, it, 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 it's going to be exalted far above the way that it was ruined. What about now? Well, quite honestly, while awaiting freedom from the presence of sin, I still face conflicts between my renewed mind and my flesh. That's what we've been reading about. The new me serves the law of God, he says at the end of this verse, but at any given moment, the flesh would be happy to serve sin. So that's the struggle. Moment by moment, day by day, the new me, the, the new man, the, the, the new creature serves the law of God. I know the law of God. I understand it. I desire to be following it. I, I, you know, I have a, 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 an inclination in that direction, but at any given moment I still see that the flesh is willing to serve sin. Ongoing sense then that I am face to face with the flesh. But I can be delivered even now from yielding to the flesh. Unlike in the physical torture, I need not become corrupted by my flesh. Remember that description at the beginning? Oh, yuck. I get grossed out when tomatoes go bad. We have like a 
orange or it must be there's a colander you know that sits on our counter and we put some of the vegetables in there to stay fresh and um, you just forget that stuff's in there sometimes you know it's kind of over and you know maybe you go three or four days three or four weeks without using a tomato and you know what amazes me about tomatoes and different things like that is they ra- they maintain their tomatoish shape until you touch them it's like a cruel joke you know we use a lot of lemons at our house. We love lemonade, fresh lemonade. I, I die for it. I could kill for it. It's, you know, it's a fleshly thing, of course. But anyway, I don't think it's sin, but it's right at the borderline. And, and you know, lemons, they start, to, they start to rot, you know, underneath and stuff. And you grab them, they're all fuzzy and rotten. And you think, can I still use this? Sure, why not? But anyway, no, I'm just kidding. I would never think of doing that. Uh, not when Pam's around, but anyway. So, you know, so the thing is, so you're sitting here thinking, so, you know, am I being corrupted? Am I being putrefied? Is this... No, that's where the illustration ends. Paul says, that's, that's your condition. You're face-to-face with the flesh every minute of your life. But you will be delivered totally one day. In the meantime, you don't need to be corrupted by it, though you carry it around. You can look your flesh in the eye and say, no to its urges and its impulses. We learned this back in chapter 6, and we're going to learn more about it in chapter 8, because Paul says, hey, the way that happens now is that you're renewed, you're this inner, you've got this new creature thing going on and a desire to serve God, and the way you do that is by the Spirit of God. You walk in the Spirit, you're filled with the Spirit, you're indwelt by the Spirit, you yield to the Spirit, and to the extent that you give yourself over to the Spirit of God in all of your decisions and in all of the details of your life, your flesh remains dormant. It's there, it's looking you in the face, it's daring you to do something on your own, in your own strength, by your own power, so that it can begin to capture you again. But as long as you're willing to walk in the Spirit, yield to the Spirit, understand the Spirit of God, and let God take over your life, then the flesh is just something that you drag around. And the Lord says that it's not even really a burden. And so we'll get into that in chapter 8. And so, uh, you know, look your flesh in the eye and just say no. Just say no. Amen.